In episode 140 of Circles Off, we're joined by Porter to discuss some of the more nuanced betting topics that relate to scaling your current betting operation and a whole lot more. This week's episode of Circles Off starts now. Welcome to Circles Off, episode number 140, right here, part of the Hammer Betting Network, empowered by Pinnacle Sportsbook. Rob Pizzola, flying solo this week. Just to make me feel comfortable, we did put a, a dummy of, of Johnny in studio. Exactly how he would be dressed. Bet stamp t-shirt, Pinnacle hat, looking sharp. He, he definitely wouldn't be wearing the headphones, though. No, not for this. No. No, no he'd be really upset about the headphones. I don't know if that mic would be swiveled like that, but that's the best we could do to replicate <laughs> with what we were working with uh, in studio today. Uh, episode number 140. It's going to be a guest episode. I'm looking forward to this one quite a bit, but there's a lot of 40s, Zach. A lot of 40s in the hockey world. Uh, Zetterberg? Zetterberg was a 40, for sure. Tuka Rask was a 40. Oh, yeah. I remember that, unfortunately, a little bit too vividly as a Leafs fan. Uh I saw the All-Star game this weekend, Elias Pettersson. Yep. By the way, the NHL fixed the All-Star game. Look, I was pretty impressed with it. Now, mind you, I got an opportunity to actually like go and be a part of some of the stuff. Went to the draft on the Thursday. Kind of stunk, but that that, that sucked. They need to fix whatever that. (laughs) Yeah, that stunk. Yeah, that was horrible. But I was there. Uh, Went to like some fan experience stuff. Saw the players walking around and everything. Uh, it felt like there was like a positive vibe in the city. It felt like there was actual like excitement for some of the events, some of the stuff that was happening. Like people were actually tuned in a little bit more. It felt like I, I thought this was like a pretty good experience, but I think that part of that is obviously just from before it actually kind of sucked. So to have something that didn't suck totally probably just makes it feel a, a million times better than it actually was. Well, first and foremost, it was in the greatest city in North America, yeah. which is a, a huge help not one of these dumpster cities they've been doing it in recent years yeah or like some shitty like montreal or something like that other garbage trash canadian city yes (laughs) it was in toronto for for starters uh who would have known that offering up a million dollar prize for the winner of the skills competition and a million dollar prize for the team win at the all-star game would have changed everything but it did except for nikita kucherov who decided like he just didn't give a shit uh which i get but also like Maybe smart idea to get the best player in the world to help you like design the skills course and and come up with something that might be entertaining to do on the ice. Yep. Be like, oh, you're the best player at any of this stuff. Like, what can we do to actually be a little bit challenging and fun? Like, seem to help a little bit at least. Sure did. Yeah. Um, other forties in the space. Uh, I'm gonna stick with the Leafs theme really quickly here. But back in the day, the Leafs used to own the Ottawa Senators in the playoffs every year. And it was Patrick Laleem wearing number 40 in net for the Senators in one game seven, gave up, gave up arguably the worst goal I've ever seen in the playoffs to Joe Newendike crossing the blue line, taking a little wrister. The difference in all those series is was the Leafs had Curtis Joseph and Ed Belfour and the Ottawa Senators had Patrick Laleem. Poor guy. <laughs> he suffered through that. Uh, some other notables, Bartolo Colon, who I was oh. a huge fan of, just due to the amount of perspiration used to have on them. He always looked like he was hung. I don't know if he drinks or not. He always looked like he was hungover on the mound. Uh, yeah, I don't know, but favorite for sure. The video of him hitting the home run is pretty oh, incredible. Man, it's so good. <laughs> yeah. 
Horrible bat. Yeah. Horrible bat. And actually, a pitcher who had a great bat with War 40, Madison Bumgarner as well. Wow. Yeah. There's a lot of good 40s. Four, and we, we were on a shit run. Yeah. We were on a real, real shit we're run. We were on like Matt Fratton. Like. Oh, it was tough. Some <laughs> of the late 30s were, were real tough. 40 were starting to get back into range. Um, football, I'm trying to think of an NFL 40, and I can't think of one off the top of my head. See if I got a list here. Oh, Mike Allstott. Are you familiar with Mike Allstott? Do you remember yeah, him? Yeah, fullback, right? Yeah, fullback for the Bucks. Yeah. He was a he was a great player. Who do you got up on screen? Oh, that's Sean Kemp. I should have yeah. known that from the NBA Jam days as well. Lots of good 40s out there. Lots of good 40s that are out there. I don't have anyone to throw to segue. <laughs> I know. I was going to s- try to help you, but I thought you were just going to go and jump into it and, on your own. Um this is, this is very unusual. I kind of sewered you a little bit there. Well, I, I wasn't <laughs> expecting you to, to give me the segue. Uh, I don't know why I was expecting the, the mute, du- you know, <laughs> dummy we got here to give me a segue or anything like that. But I do have to remind everyone. Well, he does every week. He does. Well, that's true. There you go. <laughs> I, like, I like what you did there. Hopefully he doesn't hear that. He it's, will. <laughs> it's Super Bowl week. He's definitely going to hear that. It's Super Bowl week. There's lots of bets to be placed. Everyone's going to bet the Super Bowl. I'm not saying you shouldn't. You definitely should. It's a great time. It's entertaining. Entertaining. Play within your limits. But if you are going to bet the Super Bowl and you're in Canada, make sure you have a Pinnacle Sportsbook account, especially if you're betting a lot of games. You're going to price shop these games. You're going to find some very good prices at Pinnacle Sportsbook. Low margins. It's great for a better. You place 20 bets at minus 110 everywhere else. You can place those at Las Vegas at Pinnacle Sportsbook. Make sure you're doing that for Super Bowl week. I 100% recommend it. If you're going to do so, use code HAMMER when you do sign up to Pinnacle in Canada. It supports us here on Circles Off. There's a reason they've been in business for 25 years. Very reputable book. So bet smart, bet Pinnacle, your trusted sports book. You must be 19 plus, not not available in the U.S. And as always, please play responsibly. Before we get into our guest this week, one announcement. Next episode we do of Circles Off is going to be live in studio here on Monday, February 12th, the day after the Super Bowl. Me and Johnny in studio. Make sure you're subbed here to Circles Off. Make sure you click that notification bell. It'll alert you when we go live. But we'll be recapping the Super Bowl between the Chiefs and the 49ers. That was our prediction, by the way, Yeah. on last episode. Yeah. I posted it. I tried to like tell people and explain. I put it in the episode, too. Like, these guys predicted it. That's why we were laughing so hard. Yeah. Because Johnny full sewered. He sewered me. <laughs> yeah. He threw me right sewer. under the bus asking for who's going to. So for people who don't know, and this will come up in this week's episode as well, when we're, we're chatting with our guests, we record these a couple days in advance of when they go live. So when we had recorded last time, Johnny had asked me who I thought, <laughs> you know, what I thought of the Super Bowl matchup. We didn't know the Super Bowl matchup yet. I had to give a prediction and say I like the 49ers. Now, I I took the easy route there, right? Because the, the Ravens at that time were four and a half point favorites. The 49ers were seven point favorites. I said, well, the most likely scenario here is going to be the 49ers. I said yeah. 49ers. Johnny goes out and picks the Chiefs, Chiefs. <laughs> four and a half point dog, yeah. and he gets it right. So we got the Super Bowl right. Um, I don't, I, don't, uh, I think impressive. the game's kind of a, a coin flip. I think it's kind of a coin flip game. I'm very much looking forward to it. I'm very much looking forward to it, as I am to this episode. But make sure, again, that you are subbed here on Circles Off. Just looking at our numbers right now. This is pathetic. 
the last 28 days, our watch time from subscribers is only 33.8%. Our watch time from those not subscribed is over 66%. Come on, people, get with the program. You're watching this much of Circles Off. Make sure you click that subscribe button down below. Set bell notifications. Don't for, be a freeloader. Don't be. Yeah, I love when Costos used to say that. Don't be a freeloader. We're back on Monday for a live episode. But let's get right into it. Our guest this week on Circles Off is a second-time guest right here on the program. He debuted in episode number 16, which was a very long time ago. We weren't even on YouTube yet. You can find that on Spotify or on Apple Podcasts in audio form. His name is Porter, also known as BA Analytics. You can follow him on Twitter at MLBK's Psychic. He's a professional sports better specializing in prop markets. Porter, welcome back to Circles Off. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me back on. It's been yeah, a while. no problem. It's been a long time. Um, for full full disclosure, myself and Porter are familiar with one another. We interact on Telegram every now and then, uh, maybe occasionally participate in some discords together. But as I mentioned earlier, we haven't recorded since June of 2021. I don't want to start this off in our typical, give me your full background, because we've kind of done that already before. But just so that the audience now has a general idea of how you fit into the betting ecosystem or landscape, I want you to just fill them in a little bit on that, Porter. Right. So last time I was on, I basically just talked about doing props. And I guess maybe I was still, even though that was three or four years into this industry, I've sort of changed my mind and tune over the last couple of years and realized that being stubborn really doesn't get you anywhere very far. And eventually when you start seeing that there's a cap in something, you need to expand. So I'd say today I have a really strong team around me where my job is kind of transformed more into kind of like managing and operational, dealing with partners. And today, while I was posted in the past, um, I think someone else kind of popular in this industry said the money money's green. So I'm not opposed to the origination we do. I'm not opposed to top down. I'm not opposed to, you know, getting information from other, you know, sharp guys in the industry, which by the way, is hard to find. You'd, you'd be shocked how many guys are parading out there as winners. And I don't mean, I'm not talking about touts now. I'm talking about, you know, I'm talking about guys who most of the public do think are winning. And so I've kind of changed operationally where I'm more in tune with just kind of doing whatever it takes. And that's really what's necessary to grow over time. You really can't just be, you know, one little niche, even though you might still be good at this niche, you know, it's important to evolve in this industry. There's lots of topics we can talk about today, and I wanted to make this more of a general discussion on state of the industry. Uh, we'll get into some account extension stuff. We've had Ship the Justice on before. We had Mr. Limited on as well, talking about account extension. We've had so many questions in Q&As before about partnerships, which I want to pick your brain on as well. But I want to start with what you just said there uh, in terms of people who masquerade as winners or maybe even think that they're winners themselves that are not winning in the space. And for me, it's been quite a few weeks uh, in the gambling Twitter space. I consume a lot of uh, social media, but specific to gambling Twitter, people essentially telling on themselves with like a lack of understanding of, of sports betting acumen uh, with some of the tweets that they put out. The ecosystem is, is drastically changing and has drastically changed over the span of the last few years. People who have been betting for a couple of years uh, you know, they've now convinced themselves that they're experts in the space, Porter. 
What do you make of everything that that's going on in the space right now and the amount of you know people that have flooded into it and essentially evolved the industry? Yeah, so what you said there, that last line, that's really what it is. The industry has just completely changed. I don't think 20 years ago, Billy Walters could have imagined that a person could figure out how to get 200,000 followers and affect the market and quite possibly not be a winner. But what's important for the audience to understand is that it makes perfect sense that there will be people coming out of Twitter that have done well, run hot, and are now popular and famous and influencing the market. Think about it like this. There's at least, I don't know the exact number, it's got to be 10,000 Twitter cappers going on. Of course, out of such a large amount of people, you are going to get individuals running hot for extended period of time. That, that's just how this works. If there's enough people trying, somebody will figure it out and will run hot. Eventually, they return to the mean, but you know it's possible that they've sort of built a cult-like following where it doesn't matter if they're now break-even or losing, but they've won in the past, and the casual doesn't really understand that something really has changed, and they're still influencing the market. And, and here's what's interesting. You're going to eventually, eventually there's a point where you know there's a tipping point where that person will decline, but you're just gonna have someone new filling in that role because there's another 10,000 guys out there trying to you know give picks and somebody will run hot. So how the industry today is, is there's a ton of value to be gained if you can actually pinpoint these um, guys selling picks, giving picks that have gotten big enough and you disagree with some of their plays. It, it makes it easier to get a better number and a larger volume down. So it's just the market has become something else and you need to adapt to the realities of what's going on. And there's definitely an old school wave of thought out here where they're just oh, honestly over criticizing these people. Because in reality, if your net goal is to turn a profit, then having more market chaos, that's great. It depends on what the goal is, right? Um, so there, there are certainly people out there that just have the goal of profiting. And if that's your, your sole goal, and someone is spewing a bunch of nonsense on Twitter that has a following and a lot of people are lapping it up, you could you could argue exactly what you have, that it's, it's better for you if they have. I'm on the other side of things where because of my background, which is unique, but like I had a problem gaming issue, so I hate seeing people who mislead the public, even though by going after them, I'm probably doing myself a disservice as a better. So it's like this balancing act for me. But what's really... What's really captured my attention in recent weeks is the amount of people, and I've, I've known that this to exist, it's not like this is something new, but the amount of people that actually believe that they are experts in the space. So I'm not gonna name names here because it, it's besides the point, but the last couple of weeks alone, I saw someone go on a tangent on gambling Twitter about how parlays are terrible because of the household, claims to be a winning better, doesn't understand that how parlays could help or be beneficial to a winning better and just thinks that you should never do that, you know, red flag number one for me. I've seen someone else tweet that, um, you know, there's too many people in the regular sports betting media or sports media that are getting jobs as betting analysts and those should go to people who actually bet themselves completely like not grasping that what they're doing is also the exact same thing. Um, so like, what, what do you make of this? And like, it, and like this, 
I don't even say resurgence, but like this cream rising to the top of people who think that they are experts in the space that in reality don't really have the knowledge of an expert in the space. Right. So I, I think it's important to note that sometimes we get stuck in our bubble, but th this is not unique to sports betting. This exists in hundreds of industries and it is shocking that it never works out where someone who's legitimately in the space becomes famous enough to kind of knock these guys a peg down or even if, if they do become that big they probably don't care to so it's a little bit confusing look i'm all for i'm more of a personal accountability guy so after you've been told two sets of facts i understand the nature of look the sports books themselves are trying to basically create addicts even though they have whatever they call protection, you know, consumer protection. In reality, I'm still at the end of the day, the only real solutional real solution is some form of the individual getting to facts and deciding for himself what's right and what's wrong. There's not too much. I, I don't know how many times I've tried. I mean, you've tried to. That's what your show's about. I don't believe if I mean, if the number one goal was to help that, then the only thing that sh someone should be doing is marketing and getting bigger. Because without getting bigger, you won't be able to influence enough people. But of course, it's disgusting what these touts are doing. Look, some of them don't know that they're not winners. A ton of these guys came up doing gimmicks effectively. They found a mistake. Look, the legal market, once it started, it was the wild, wild west. There was insane things you could do where anyone who forgets sports betting, you just literally had to click buttons until you found things that were broken. You don't need to know sports betting to, to do this. You know, so in reality, if you came up in this industry with success through gimmicks and don't get me wrong, there's nothing wrong with gimmicks if it's a part of your tool bag. But if it's the only tool in your tool bag, then you're in for a really harsh reality when you came up crushing. You did look in all honesty, a lot of these guys crushed. It's really easy to win with a five thousand dollar free play promo. I know at one point DK was giving winning betters a hundred dollars back on every thousand dollar bet. Mm -hmm. You you. You basically can't lose. So in reality, if you came up through these gimmicks, you made money. You now believe you're an expert because, you know, that's the result you saw. But now with the market sort of changing, this freebies are, they're still there, but a lot harder to find. You know, you're going to start seeing a lot of people kind of falling off an edge here moving forward. Now, so the, I agree with you. It, I think at the end of the day, it's on the consumer of anything to do their due diligence right in the space and try to figure out whether you know if, if it's whether it's buying picks or consuming some sort of free content that you're going to tail the picks or whatever at the end of the day it comes down to the individual who's doing that themselves the challenge i have is that you think of other industries right like i want to book a vacation i'll go to you know expedia kayak whatever whatever the the site is google flights what and there's going to be lots of reviews by people who are not incentivized to review in any way that know whether or not the resort that they stayed at was good or bad and leaves a review and explains why. And, you know, the staff was courteous. My my room was a mess. You know, the beach wasn't as good as it's, they said. And the, those exist in the sports betting space. The challenge is you got 98% of the betters. This is just industry studies, by the way, who lose, right? and give or take a percentage point here or there. So if you go to get a review from someone else in the space, you're getting a review from someone who doesn't know any better. You know what I'm getting at? Like it makes it very, very difficult 
for someone, whether they're purchasing picks, consuming content, to tell what's BS and what's not because everyone else in the ecosystem can't tell what's BS and what's not. Yeah, the the difficulty with this is that in reality, if you kind of believe in like sort of the American model, that, that's on the regulators. And I'm sure you've heard from a lot of people in this industry, the regulators are just sort of in cahoots with the books. So they're just trying to get more tax revenue. So they don't care that, you know, things are, you know, we're creating addicts. I mean, the same thing happened in uh, the UK where addiction rates, it took half a decade and they started to skyrocket. You're going to see these same trends eventually unfortunately come to the american market that's just the nature of the beast and i'm not really pro regulation but in my opinion the solution unless you're truly someone famous is it's kind of out of our hands i I, you don't have i don't really see a way to solve this issue it's more of people don't want to take personal accountability that's why they buy picks by the way it feels better to just take someone else's pick if they lose it's not you who lost it's they who lost So you're kind of removing the accountability. So to me, maybe this is kind of more a philosophical question. And while I despise that they're basically creating addicts and under, if you really thought about this, that should be some kind of actual, I don't know, maybe crime, you know, that big tobacco gets sued. I, I don't know exactly how you can solve this issue, but I do think at the end of the day, not enough people are taking personal accountability. I get that they're getting the wrong facts, but then how do some people find the right facts, you know? So I, I don't like it. I don't think it's ethical, but I don't see a great solution. I think a lot of people find the right facts through experience, honestly, like they'll buy picks and then they'll realize, well, this person doesn't win. Why am I doing this? And then maybe they'll go down at a second path and try someone else. I mean, I'm, I'm basically describing my childhood. In, in some capacity. It's like, well, this guy didn't win, but this guy's on this run. I'm going to buy his picks before you eventually realize, okay, all of this is BS. And maybe it just takes people living that experience. It just sucks that it has to happen that way, where it's like through experience rather than, you know, the weird thing to me is sports books, in my opinion, could, could put out marketing campaigns like of this is exactly what sports betting is you are very likely going to lose in the long run for X, Y, and Z reasons. You pay a VIG, you do this and whatever. I actually don't even think that would deter people because they want the entertainment from sports betting. But there seems to be like this, uh, these, I don't want to even call it aspirations, but you see a lot of like the tweets about this $2 bet or one a $200,000 parlay or whatever. And to me, like that's not even necessary to get people betting. It's just a behavior people want you can be real with them, avoid them going down a horrible path. They still probably lose in the long run. They still probably generate a lot of, um, you know, daily engagement with the sports book and so on and so forth. Like it doesn't have to steer to the one direction, at least in, in my opinion. Hey, look, we'll either be proven right or wrong. Either, you know, DKFD, Caesar's stock is going to go crashing, or we got another 20 years of these companies growing. I, I kind of, I, I, I know it sounds ridiculous, but I sort of, don't disagree with how these books operate in terms of if their duty is to their stock shareholders, then they're acting morally and ethically correct. That's just how the market and, you know, market dynamics work, whether it's right or wrong. And it's clearly morally wrong is a different, is a different topic. Yeah, I I do. I do get that side of things as well. And I think people have the, um, generally speaking, 
the inability to like step back and get the full picture of what's going on here. It's like, well, how could this sports book do? How could this CEO come out and say this? It's like, well, he's got, you know, he's reporting to a board of directors. He's got certain mandate under his job to get, you know, X amount of people onto the platform and whatever. But yeah, which is why, which is why I always kind of say a lot of us are kind of in this bubble that it's like sports betting. You know, we only see it from one perspective and one viewpoint, and it's hard for us to see it from the other side. And I think if you start seeing it from the other side, depending on what your goals are, you can be better situated to succeed in this industry. Yeah, I mean, I I get it. Like I was 22 years old and I was doing uh, essentially infomercials for covers and for their experts. I'd interview a daily, an expert every single day, Dave Malinsky, Steve Merrill, Teddy Covers, Matt Fargo, like the list goes on and on. And I didn't know any better in hindsight. Like if I could go back to that time, would I change anything? I probably wouldn't because it was a job for me. I was on air, like, you know, it, it, <laughs> It's challenging to, to, and like people don't understand that point of view, that complete, that other side of things, but um, it is what it is. Um, really want to pick your brain on something a little bit topical right now, because we had this situation this past weekend, which was Pebble Beach and three round tournament on the PGA, which is unusual, but it happens where they call the final round due to inclement weather. They can't get it set up. Now, a lot of people thought and knew this was going to happen. So they went to their sports books and they started taking shots, right? Parlays on, you know, T5s, T10s, T20s, winner of the tournament, throw them all together and hope that there's no final round. Some of them did it while the third round was live. Some of them did it after the fact, after the third round was done. There's a lot to process here. And there's been a ton of opinions on the matter, uh, both from the better side of things in terms of whether or not you should take that type of shot. And from the sportsbook side of things, whether the operator should be on the hook because there are no explicit terms in their terms and conditions and their house rules. Um, Curious what your thoughts are on the entire situation from, from both perspectives. Right. So I think the best way to approach situations like this is thinking in terms of numbers and not necessarily in terms of like the, you know, an outcome is not zero or a hundred. There's a lot of, you know, variables that, you know, you might have a 40% outcome or a 60% outcome. So I think congratulations to the sports books that were actually on a free roll. If the round four started on all the people who put in, uh, put in those third round bets, but you know, that's the nature of the beast. Um, I do think all the players, look, it worked before, you know, um, a different scenario where highly unusual scenario, you know, the Draymond Green situation happened and they did pay out. I know it's not the same situation because here effectively you're talking about past post betting the third round for some people. And I absolutely think just so it's very clear, people should always be taking these shots if the possible result of the outcome is greater than the consequences. And here the consequences might be that you got your account banned or, you know, there's a myriad of possible consequences, but the upside here is pretty tremendous if it goes through. So if you've thought about the possible downsides and you think they're worth it, you should absolutely be taking shots like this, you know, at the sports books. Now, I think the sports books should protect their interests and void these bets. But that doesn't mean that people were wrong for attempting to take the angle. Um, I know some people are of the viewpoint that this is more like a, uh, 
you know, you and the book are, you know, doing this dance and you're sort of on the same team and maybe you can help out the book. And don't get me wrong. If you're really huge in this space, that might work for you. But if you're the everyday guy, no, it's not. You're not on the same team. You guys are adversaries. You're basically going into war every single day and trying to figure out how to beat the other side. And look, there we're willing to take a shot at all the people who put those uh, round robins and parlays, top fives, top ten. I'm positive they would have graded it one way if round four had happened. So I don't think it's the end of the world that people are attempting to take shots. But listen, if you bet after, shot didn't work. Sorry. Like, you know, if now if you bet before the last hole, now I'm starting to have a little bit of, you know, one nice gamble. That that's 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 pretty sharp of you to pick it up before the round ends. But yeah, that, that's a tougher one where I could see either way. There's probably a lot less people that bet beforehand. I feel like a lot of what I'm seeing on Twitter is all past post betting. And again, I'm not opposed to it. I just the book beat you. They voided the bet. Sorry. The gamble didn't work. Yeah, I think there's a lot of talk now, and I've seen a lot of this. We'll see actually how much of this actually comes to fruition of people threatening litigation, right? Like, well, I'm going to sue the book because there are no rules in your house rules about um, these alternate markets, the T5s, the T10s, the T20s. There, there's, I mean, candidly, I've went through all the house rules for some of these books, and it's extremely unclear. But I will say there's a house rule at every single one of these books that says that they can void due to like an obvious error or obvious line error or obvious mistake. And to me, as much as like, I, I root for betters and like, I, I'm all about just like you taking your shots, trying to use like logic and use your brain to figure out an edge and gain an edge. But at the end of the day, it's pretty obvious that that this was an error and allowing you to parlay all of those things when there was not going to be a final round or very high chance of it. Uh, I can I don't see how anyone would win any sort of litigation against a sports book um, on this matter. I, I so that's I mean, the beauty. That's the beauty of how this country works. If someone wants to do it, they can. You know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm kind of jealous. I didn't think about it in in real time, but at the end of the day, I I don't see what's going to come of this. Um, the, the 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 counter side is the the argument that. Well, if there was a fourth round, which there could have been, it, was, it wasn't decided, like a lot of people put in these bets when it wasn't decided yet that the tournament right. was over. If there was a fourth round, would my bets have stood? And the answer is yes, they all would have stood. So well, that, this, yeah. this is real simple. The book isn't your friend. <laughs> it's, it's just that simple. Yep. Mm. Oh, all right. I, I, I mean, I, I, go, I go back and forth. I, I do, it, it's, it's the mass amount of liability that's built, been built up, right? Like you see some of these parlays, they're paying like 700K, yeah. right? Yeah. You, you know, it's, it's not, it ain't happening. The payouts- You know, if you love sports betting, you know what the worst thing that could possibly happen for you is? All, all the books disappear, right? <laughs> you know, and if you have enough of these scenarios where you're just allowed to do anything you want, look, in all honesty, if you gave some syndicates unlimited amounts to bet, in small markets, they're going to own the sports book after a year or two. So it makes sense that these books need to sort of protect themselves. And it's our job as at least professionals to figure out how to play this song and dance with them because they're not just going to give it away. And, and to be honest, there are some advantages to the fact that they make things difficult. Listen, if it was easy, everyone would do it. And then there would be no edge. 
whatsoever. So a lot of these things that people are rooting for, like, oh, let me bet more. They don't realize that what they're actually saying is they will be marginalized out of the industry eventually if all of these things happen. And it was super easy. That is true. However, the vast majority of people I know would take a 700K payout to never bet again. Like that. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, yeah, maybe, sure. maybe not someone like you who's a pro better or something like that, but for a casual who is just like, you know, trying to score a big payday, they don't really care if they're putting a sports book out of business by doing so. Um, so there's, there is, there is that side of it as well. Yeah, for sure. Again, the, the goals and like, I mean, there's no question. I, I'm to be honest, I'm on the casual side. I just kind of figure the world operates a certain way. So it is what it is. Like to me, if I did that, I just shrug and, and move on. I, I can't, just like you said, I just can't see how you could, you know, you know and people know the people, the people know that if you bet after, you know, you were taking a shot, you know, and just hoping goes through and you know what? Sometimes it will go through and work out. So this is a, how, how long ago did you start betting? About how many years so, ago? So I started 2016, but for the legal bets, uh, legal sites, I was a year late. I didn't really believe, again, stubbornly that it would work out. And you can, I, I just thought you'd get limited in two seconds. And it took me a year and someone kind of annoying me to change my mind and go see if what was happening was what everyone was saying. And yeah, it was the wild, wild west at the beginning. So the, the only reason I asked that question is because I kind of see a divide on this topic between um, what I will just refer to as old school and new school. So for me, I grew up taking these types of shots on like PPH accounts. I, I think right. I famously told the story. Um, I, I mean, I, I don't know how long ago I told the story, but I bet on a PPH when I was younger that for two or three years did not adjust for daylight savings time. So I knew the results of horse races and I could still bet those races. And I tried to maximize that. I grew up taking those shots. Now, if those got voided, that would have just been standard practice because I've had that happen to me so many times in life. And a lot of us who bet in the PPH world before even an offshore or illegal, we're just accustomed to, to bets getting voided all the time. Like, even if you get a great price on something that like, you know, wasn't even a bad, obvious error that could be voided by your agent or whatever. So I, I think there's a lot of people that, that just lived that out already. And they're like, yeah, what's the big deal here? This is like, obviously yeah. never should be, but then there's the new school who was like a little bit um, in less, less experienced. They kind of got into the game as regulation and, and this world is foreign to them. Like the thought of how the hell can I place a bet into a legal sports book? They take my action and now they're telling me that this bet is not good. I thought this was what regulation was for. Well, to be fair, the sports books are actually creating that scenario by giving these, uh, you know, the guy got injured after one minute, give them the money back or, you know, those other sites that do the reboots. If the guy doesn't play enough, you know, so they're creating they've created these little monsters sort of themselves. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I get that viewpoint though. Like I, again, take a step back, right? Like look at the, the bigger picture and there's a lot of people who are like, yeah, it's just obviously a void. I grew up like, this is a void. It's been a void for my entire life. Well, it's, there's people that are new to the space that they've been told regulation, like there, there's a regulating body. Like if, the, if you can't be mistreated, you can complain to, to regulators or whatever. 
and they need to the, the sports books need to operate under their terms and conditions and they're I, I don't schools. think that's a bad thing i don't think that's a bad thing that people are complaining about it i just that's the you know you just have discourse you figure out what's going to happen and it is it is really what it is so it's i don't think there's an issue really with people complaining i mean look there is an issue where i do think actually i'm not sure how this started but the uh, money back thing i just assume that DraftKings or whatever companies are doing this they just saw it as a good marketing tool so the people asked for it and it affects lots of people you know you, you get worse lines you know when they focus on these promotions they can't really focus on the, the sports book part so they kind of let the consumer lead them into the direction because maybe they're not experienced enough to understand the possible you know, ramifications of some of these decisions. I think the, the thing that I find funny or amusing about the whole situation is the recreational sports book push towards these bed types over the last couple <laughs> years, right? You, you can same game parlay anything, put together a 20 game parlay, whatever. And, and they have advertised this ad nauseum. Like we're in Ontario, basically there's not a sports book commercial that I see that doesn't promote a same game parlay in some capacity. And what I find comical about the entire situation is that yes, like these are higher hold bets. The sports book wants to take them, but then you accumulate this <laughs> amount of risk on a golf event because so many people figure out, you know, sort of a loophole. And I, I find I find that to be a little bit comical. Yeah. 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 They basically created the situation themselves over years of pushing people towards these types of bets. Um, last week, we spoke to Mr. Limited, and we got very good feedback on that show uh, in the comments down below on YouTube. And as always, if you want to give us some feedback at any time, comment down below here. Make sure you smash that like button down below as well and sub subscribe here to Circles Off. Uh, we've had a lot of conversations about account extension on the show in the past year. Started with Shipper when he was on, former trader uh, at a recreational sports book, kind of just went through how they would limit uh, in his experience there. Mr. Limited, betting into accounts, kind of went through his experiences as well. You're also an expert in keeping accounts alive. This helps sustain your livelihood, especially with your bet types. What do you think are some of the best practices uh, for sports bettors to keep accounts alive that maybe have been going under the radar that, that haven't been discussed yet? Okay, so I'm gonna do something that you talked about earlier in the episode. I'm either gonna tell on myself or I'm gonna tell on somebody else. So here we go, totally different take to this uh, opinion to, about accounts and getting limited. So I believe that there's a certain segment of the population, uh, actually let's start from the beginning. Poker pros, a lot of this, you can take a connection from coaching in poker pros. Um, very high stake level people, it's correct, they're not playing one, two, no limit or low stakes. But if you take their theories and are able to understand them, then you can apply them to even though that individual might not be playing those stakes, you can still apply those theories. So same thing in sports betting. I believe that the practice of attempting to extend accounts is, it, it means something a little bit different than what people think. Okay, so if an individual in this space is a semi-pro, then I'm just gonna throw out random numbers that I think are somewhat close. They're looking to either replace their current job in the amount of money they make or they're looking at it as a hobby or side income and trying to make a little bit less or the same of what they're already making in their current life okay so we'll start with that base using that base the math is real simple 
effectively these sites, if you can bet say $500 on them, you're really only looking to win two units or three units a week. So if you're trying to win that amount, then it makes sense to attempt to do, uh, you know, circumvent these limits. So if that's your goal, then you should absolutely be attempting to, you know, get these accounts extended. But understand that in reality, this advice is being given for people that are attempting to win. And again, I'm, I'm kind of throwing out random numbers, but I would guess somewhere between 50 and 75K, maybe 25,000 and 75,000, depending where they live in the United States. So a lot of this focus on account preservation and extension, first of all, is anecdotal. Um, not people that work on the back end, but you know, you're talking about yeah, I'm sure you've you've sort of thought about this before where someone's talking about an experience and you're like, isn't that a sample size of uh, seven? You know, that doesn't make too much sense. Let's say it's a huge sample size. Let's say you're really good at bearding. Aren't you talking about a sample size of 20? So a lot of the advice is anecdotal. So what you're doing is you're risking account extension, which which effectively means figuring out how to break even, winning without CLV, which I, I have to tell you for most of the audience's highly unrealistic. So account preservation and account extension, they're just synonyms and code words for losing. You will net win approximately the same amount if you focus on other things like maybe figuring out how to start your next not limited account. So a lot of this like focus is in account extension. I'm not so pro for it. Now, if you don't have the ability to network, you don't have the ability to place 50, 60 bets a day. Look, I, I get NBA guys telling me sides and totals. They're high volume guys. They got four or five bets a day. You know, in this industry, it's very easy to have 50 or 60 in a day. So to me, most of these people aren't even realizing their long run edge. They don't even know. That, that's part of the problem with betting a 3% ROI thing. By the time something has changed and you've picked up on it, you might have been betting minus 1% the whole time, which is how I think the acceptance of break-even seasons has come to, to, to life in the maybe old-school mentality, where in reality, if you think about this kind of like the, the, how poker used to be, where some guys are playing millions of hands a year, you know, their long run comes a lot sooner. So again, I think a lot of this account extension stuff is sort of non nonsense, in all honesty. I, again, this depends on your goal in the industry. So when you're talking about maybe the reason why some of these accounts are being extended is because they win two units a week, three units a week, and not because of all these kind of gimmicks where you trick the book. Look, it makes sense to me to think if you mislead the book at the beginning that you are going to get a longer leash. Do you know how many times, here's, a, here's an anecdotal experience, I have done this, then run the account back 90% of the way to even, and then been cut off. Let me tell you how many times people are forgetting to mention that experience into the calculation of them, you know, extending accounts. Yeah, a uh, lot to process there. Um, so, so generally speaking, your premise is that the vast majority of people in the style that they, they are currently betting now, which is not to sustain a living uh, or anything like that, would just be better off betting, you know, to win, essentially, rather than you know, trying to masquerade their account or uh, disguise it in, into something that it's not. Just go in there, do what you got to do, and you're better off in the long run doing that. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I, I know also what's sort of happening in a couple of these places on the back end. A lot of this is anecdotal, and the reason the accounts are lasting 
is because this account wins two units. Rest assured, if you you know put in negative EV parlays for a month, and then all of a sudden put the sharpest, best CLV stuff, yeah, you'll get some run back, but there's a good chance that you don't run it all the way back even. So I don't think people take into account Maybe they tried this strategy six times. It didn't work twice. They forget about that, you know, put that in the past. And great, it worked these next four times. I think there's a little bit too much. There's a lack of focus on, look, if you spent 2,000 hours on your model and 2,000 minutes on your process of being able to get down, there's a mismatch here. A lot of people are just not properly allocating their time. And again, it depends on your goals in this industry. Not everyone's goals are the same thing. But I think a lot of this account preservation is anecdotal and it's more based off the fact that yes you're doing some things that sound good but in reality you're winning two units a week and that's 80 percent of the reason that they're keeping you around because they're not sure exactly if you're a winner or not a winner so yeah. it's complicated you need a massive sample size to really know what's going on well that that's that's an interesting point and i actually have not heard that talked about at all by anyone because you know i i adjust based off experience so do other people but but you're right. Like if someone said to me in, in like any other sport, well, I got this sample size of 10 and, you know, I would be like, well, yeah, it's it's nothing. But yet in determining how I'm going to play certain accounts or things like that, I, I might use a very small sample and be like, well, you know, last time I went into this account, I bet, you know, five straight bets or whatever got limited. And this is what the market was. I'm not going to do that again. When in reality, it could have just been like bad luck. Could have been a trader seeing that account or, or whatever. Yeah. And I'm formulating my entire opinion on how I should bet going forwards based off of that. I, I haven't heard that before. And that's interesting. Think about how dangerous that is to formulate entire extravagant operational strategies based off three times, four times. You know, to me, it sounds crazy. And it's basically unprovable because no one's getting here to the long run of really understanding if it works or not. My personal opinion is that yes, it helps extend an account. If your goals are to make money in that range, it makes sense to possibly attempt to do this. But this stuff is not the gold that, you know, it seems like this new trend in Twitter spaces and podcasts is making it out to be. People think they found people think they found kind of the fountain of youth here. And you're I think you're misleading a lot of casuals who can barely win as is into doing questionable things. Well, that's a different story now. And that that that's on the the individual themselves, right? And they have to have some sort of self-awareness, right? And, and to anyone out there, like if you're not a winning better, you don't need to worry about being limited anyway. So like this is this is a a moot point. If you're a losing better over the long run, it's a moot point. And I completely agree with that. I think some people get fixated on this when they don't need to be, unless you've actually already been limited limited at several spots as like a proof of concept, then don't worry about it. But there is something, Porter, that's like extremely frustrating about not being able to get down. And like pro betters beards, you mentioned that term before, people who don't know what that is, but like essentially you're you're, you're finding a way to get another account at um, whether that be like a, a, a retail shop or whatever, anywhere. It's just finding a way to get another account. A lot of people don't want to do that. There's inherent risk with that. Technically, it's against, you know, terms of service or whatever. So you get a couple limitations, maybe in a market where you have 10 legal sports book, and now you're limited at two or three. There's not really a lot of paths forward for that type of person. And from that point of view, I can understand like being a little bit more cautious going forwards on the rest of the accounts. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I, I agree. There is a certain demographic that this applies to and makes sense to do. But again, I think it's taking away from high level thinking of what is the actual, and again, there's no solution, but what is possibly the better solution, you know? And I don't believe that this is the optimal solution if your goal is something higher than just winning a unit or two a week. So what, okay, let's, let's go to your scenario then. Um, where you're you're betting at mass, right? Is this is this ever a consideration for you? Like, what if you were to get a hold of a VIP account, as an example, somewhere where you could bet a huge amount of money? In your head, are you just going to extract that immediately for as much as you possibly can, or is there an art to making that account still seem like it is a square better? So first and foremost, that's a question of partnership. So a lot of problems is sometimes maybe one individual speaks with the uh, whale, the VIP account, and doesn't exactly explain what's going to occur. It's very hard, by the way, to explain and convince in the first place. A whale didn't get to the position he is in life, usually out of luck. He succeeded in other avenues. So he's usually a confident individual. So I feel like the first part of this is this is a conversation you have with the partnership. Maybe this is an individual that wants his accounts limited. I've seen this situation before where they want you to go ham. Another person sort of gives you a range of what might be okay. So the question you're asking, you asked me the question, but in reality, it's not my account. It's the partner's account. So it's a question that needs to be directed at the partner. And if they tell you certain stipulations, like, hey, I don't want this limited. Hey, we need to go a different avenue. Then it's kind of up to me to explain the pros and cons of what happens attempting to do that. So I get that you asked me the question, but in reality, I think a lot of people in this space don't understand the, these are partnerships. So when you someone brings you an account, it's not I'm doing 99.9% of the work and they're doing 0.01% of the work. There is some work to be done on the other side of the aisle. And by the way, when that work is done, you're both going to have better success. So I get how you asked me that question of what I would do. But my answer to that question is, I don't know. I'm going to ask the person who I've taken the account what he wants to do. Are there ways to make an account last longer and look less sharp? Yes. All right, uh, let's pivot into partnerships then. And I think you're a very good person to ask a lot of these questions to. Uh, on episode 74 of Circles Off, we had Ferris on who joined us for a discussion. He explained a lot about how betting partnerships work and his experiences working with different groups. We do regular Q and A's here on Circles Off. We run one typically once every couple of months. And I have been purposely saving some of these partnership questions um, in the hopes of getting you to answer them based off of your personal experiences. So these are ones, uh, like we get these pretty regularly nowadays, but I'll throw them over to you, Porter, and we'll go from there. Um, how is a typical sports betting partnership structured? I'm being offered a 50-50 risk deal or a 15% free roll with makeup. Is this standard or am I getting screwed? Okay, so step one, partnerships basically work in the reverse of how a book works. So most books are Monday through Sunday results, settled the following Tuesday-ish via some form of internet money. By the way, I recommend everyone pay their taxes. Um, so that's step one. I, I you also recommend everyone pay their taxes. <laughs> okay, perfect. Um, first thing we, you know, good thing to agree on. Um, so that's the first step. You kind of duplicate their business model into yours. Step number two is how you split an account up. So 
Yeah, I'll just say more than I should. So in reality, most partnerships, I think, in this industry start 60-40, where this assumes that the new partner is only giving you one or two accounts. And as they grow, those percentages shift towards the partner closer and closer to, you know, you know, 50-50. On a free roll side, um, the standard deal is 85-15. But here's a caveat to all this. So I'm gonna I'm gonna talk a little bit more about the PPH space, even though it applies in the legal space. And PPH means uh, betting against your local book or agent. So there are plenty of people in this industry that will say, I have 50 accounts, I have 70 accounts. And then you ask them, sure, what are the accounts? And they will, and it's not really important for the audience to understand, to hear the names, but there are some sites that are absolutely worthless or near worthless. And yet this person thinks he has 50 accounts. So an individual who has 40 pieces of garbage, I'm, I'm not even that interested in working them. It just sounds cool to people that, oh, this guy has a lot of accounts. Now, if someone has a highly valuable account, I'm willing to change the structure of the partnership completely. There are some sites where, in reality, if you're a break-even, slightly winning per player, better, you, you shouldn't even make get into a partnership. You're going to be able to beat those sites. They're, they're just that soft. And if you can't, then that's the perfect account to actually start a partnership with. Because there's nothing easier at the beginning of a partnership to sort of settle disputes or run into problems of winning. Now... If you go on a long downswing and then all of a sudden there's a lot more issues that become a lot more complicated. So in partnerships, I think the beginning stages of a partnership are incredibly important to go slow. So if your partner's telling you you can win 5K on this account, I like to cap the account at 2000 the first week. Now it might sound like I'm leaving money on the table. No, what I'm leaving on the table are headaches that come up when all of a sudden that figure is too much. So a lot of these partnerships, I, I feel like there isn't enough communication and understanding on the partner side that they, they have a job also. So at the end of the day, if you're getting half of the account, I'm not asking for people to do half the work, but just, you know, food for thought that you are getting half of all of the results. So, but uh, to answer that opening question, that's, that is the standard deal in this industry. Now, if the person has a really high ROI, and again, I'm shooting myself in the foot, no, no one should take an 85-15 free roll. Uh, it probably means you're not positioned to be betting yet. Because in reality, if they have a high ROI, you're really just kind of putting your account, your account will eventually be cut off. People have a finite amount of accounts. So effectively, they're wasting their account at a lower cut. There is, in at least in smaller markets, th there's no such thing as a free roll. These accounts over the long run will win. Like, otherwise, how would I be in the industry if they weren't? So, you know, if you just do the simple math, it might be a wise decision to not really start off partnerships giving free roll, even though I'm all for it. I, I want a bigger cut. So I, I do believe people taking free rolls are, are kind of getting the short end of the stick. I will slightly disagree just on one thing. For anyone who's giving accounts, I would suggest you take a free roll if you cannot afford to pay 50% or 40% or, or oh. of the lot. Because I, I will say, I've seen this happen a million times before. I can tell when it's going to happen because I can see people sweating bets in like the Telegram chat. Can't believe we lost this bet like this. What a horrible week or whatever. And I already know that it's going to come time to pay at the end of the week. And there's going to be like, ah, can you guys front me that? So if Well, that's a great point that covers the understanding your partner and partnerships are more than just a random person giving you an account where you need to spend time understanding what's going on. So absolutely. If you have the ability 
to kind of foresee that this is an issue here. Absolutely. I agree with that. Yeah. So I would generally agree with Porter in that the vast majority of people that you give your accounts to are going to win in the long run. There are some bad players out there who operate under like false pretenses and they think that they're amazing that aren't. Vast majority will win. However, that does not mean that they cannot have a terrible week. And sometimes that'll happen the first week that you're working with them and you're like, what the hell is going on here? And then you're on the hook for a bunch of losses. So this doesn't just apply to partnerships, but sports betting in general, do not bet more than you can afford to lose. Like, even if you are working with the best bettors, you have to have some sort of limit and understand your limits as well. So never let that get in the way when you are... Yeah, yeah. just just to give a little bit of my experience, when I first started betting, I I was betting $25 units for a long period of time until I built my bankroll. And then I bet $50 a unit for a long period of time until I really understood... Can I win? Is this market is this market beatable? So absolutely, uh, for me personally, I'm I'm relatively conservative when it comes to that. So I might overlook sometimes that people might be betting above their means. But absolutely, you should have a finite number where even it, it's hard to explain to the general public a ten percent ROI, which is unreal in this industry. You can still take catastrophic losses and downswings. And that's not an ROI that most of these partnerships are achieving. So let alone a two or 3% ROI, what that means to what could happen to your bankroll. So for sure, no one, I mean, you can do the Kelly criterion, which is way too aggressive. I I think like a general standard safe amount to bet uh, when you're starting and looking for some upside. And I don't bet anywhere near this big on my plays individually. I just can't. But I would say no more than maybe 1%, 2% of your bankroll is a kind of, if you don't want to do too much hard math, a kind of good good rule of thumb. Uh, next question comes from Riggs uh, via email. If I work with a partner, am I still able to bet into the accounts myself? Right. So that's a question of the quality of the group that you're working with. In reality, with some of the tech where if you have employees that are doing the accounting, that should have no bearing or issue on the account. So in my situation, I always tell them they can do whatever they want. Understand that if there's not enough credit, sometimes it's going to miss plays. But for me, if each play I'm entering is plus EV, I don't mind. I'm personally not sitting and doing the accounting every week, but I have someone who does. So it just depends on the size and scope of the operation, really. And by the way, that's kind of a weird... Just to tell you from the perspective of, of the sharp side, um, ethical, unethical, I, I don't mind that my partners bet in. Most of the partners probably don't win. I explain to them this. That's why they're giving me the account. That might extend an account. That might bet more market. So there really shouldn't be any perceived downside or difficulties with someone else betting into an account other than tying up credit. Tying up credit and then the accounting as well. It takes a little yeah. bit longer after the fact to decipher whose plays are who. Uh, right, but I think a big group. I think a bigger group that that should not. That's right. not an issue. Yep, totally agree. Uh, next one here. I am a winning soccer better. Congratulations. Uh, mostly smaller leagues, but I do well. Every time I reach out to someone for a partnership, they ask for me to send the plays through them instead of handing over the accounts directly to me any reason why this would happen? So I think I'm sort of out there, the king of anti-send model plays. There's nothing I despise more than the send model. 
The send model to me tells me that people don't understand price sensitivity. So I'm going to go with the kind of dark side explanation of why they don't want to hand over the account. One, they're not being honest with how much they're getting down if they've determined you're a winner. Two, when you give a price range, they're probably giving you closer to the bad part of your price range. Three, a lot of times they're not going to be around. You know, if you're a professional better or really winning, you're around all day. I, you can't afford to have someone be seven minutes late to a play. The send model is designed in general to kind of screw <laughs> the sharp better and advantageize the mover. And it could be not on purpose, by the way. They might not understand how important price is. But here, here's a fun example. You have 50 bets a day. And you save on those bets on average five cents. Let, let's go crazy. Ten cents. No, let's do five cents more than the person you're sending to. Now, remember before I spoke about how people are looking to win two, three units a week. Well, if you have 50 plays and you save five cents on average, that's two and a half units. That's just to show people how important price is and why this like fixation with the send model has a lot of problems. Now, don't get me wrong. A lot of times when you do the send model and you tell someone how much you got down, you might have gotten screwed along the way and not paid. So you might need a little bit of extra. So I'm playing devil's advocate here a little bit. But I think this all stems from the misunderstanding of price sensitivity and how easy it might be to get down sports spending to the more nefarious. They're trying to steal a few cents or getting down more than you expect. Yeah, so I can speak from experience on this as well. And there's pros and cons to everything in sports. Betting, You'll get more right? down. You'll get more down probably. So, so, you know, we're recording this on Tuesday afternoon. And if I wanted to bet, as an example, the Pittsburgh Penguins today, I could go to Pinnacle and I could fill that bet for $14,000. Just with one click, 14K, Penguins minus 107. Now, my true line in the game might be minus 130, let's say, right? If I'm working with betting partners who are betting it on my behalf, and I send them send this out to them and say, hey, I like the Penguins up to minus 120. They're not going to return me the <clears throat> minus 107 at Pinnacle. They'll probably bet it for the 14K themselves as well, but they're going to return me maybe minus 117 average price, minus 118, and that's going to just take my ROI and bring it down. Now, I can fill more money that way, which helps rather than me having to execute all the bets myself. So there's pros and cons, but that is an illustration of the send model uh, where... For some people, it just doesn't make sense. Like if, if, if you can fill these bets at smaller prices yourselves, you don't need to send them to other people who are gonna get you worse prices, generally speaking. So um, how much credit would I typically need to have to make it worthwhile for a betting partnership? So you have to remember every play that's being put in theoretically should be plus EV. So if it's on an operational scale, adding another account isn't too difficult. So I find a lot of maybe <clears throat> older, more well-versed guys in the industry, or maybe a little bit older mindset, they're looking for huge limits and huge amounts. I really don't see much downside. And I'll explain a little bit more on this, why even taking a $100 max bet, $1,000 credit line can start a partnerships. Now, <clears throat> when I started in this business, I was extremely fearful of those smaller accounts because in reality, I wasn't betting enough volume to move the lines. But if you're established in this industry, once you click, even in the PPH space, within a second, these lines move. 
So if you're concerned about being copied, I, I'm not. You want to copy at 30, 40 cents worse? By all means, do it. It doesn't bother me. So to me, taking accounts as small as even 100, 1,000, uh, sorry, 100 max bet or min bet, 1,000 credit line, even that adds up. Now think about that with 80 of them. All of a sudden, you know, it makes a difference. So now here's why people don't do it. They don't want to put in the work communicating with 60 partners. You know what? I'm willing to do some of the hard stuff like that. It's not fun to ha have to send 65 Excel sheets on a Monday versus uh, four, but you know, each person has his own niche and his own angle in the industry. So I'm, I don't see what the downside of taking even small accounts is. All right. Uh, one more here, which I'm taking from our com community forum. If anyone does want to ask any questions, you can do so by commenting down below. But also every episode, I do check our community forum for Circles Off. All you got to do is go to the hammer.bet, click on the nails on the left-hand side of the screen. And we do have a forum for Circles Off where you can drop in questions. Sometimes I will just answer them directly on the forum. Sometimes I'll take them to the show as well, but you can do that at any point. Also, you can enter to win a Pinnacle swag bag and a Betstamp swag bag. It's free of cost. All you got to do is enter that giveaway and we'll be giving them out. Uh, I'm going to summarize this one because it's a really long one, but it has to do with uh, botting versus hand betting and what those mean. Um, and particularly if you will take an account which you have to hand bet, Porter. Yeah, of course. So botting effectively means it's not this all-knowing, or at least from what I know, it's not this all-knowing machine that predicts what team will win and what team will lose. That you might have models on the side that you figure out and use. Botting is effectively a service <clears throat> uh, where you have software that bets across lots of sites at the same time because the line will move. Hand betting, by the way, if you're fast enough, and sometimes uh, I recommend people, sports betting has so many components. We used to effectively run drills of how to get through 20 sites as fast as possible. That's weird, right? That has nothing to do with sports betting, and yet it's an was an integral part of the business. So hand betting effectively means where you're logging in manually into each site, which, by the way, if you're fast enough, you can get across 15 sites in 30 seconds. All right. Uh, it is the week of the Super Bowl, Porter. Uh, we're recording this episode on Tuesday for full transparency for everyone out there. We typically don't record the day that it is released. But for you now on this Tuesday, Porter, what percentage of your Super Bowl bets have already been placed uh, and how many more are coming up this week? Right. So the early half of the week. So again, I'm going to give a little insight into how... Um, kind of a professional betting landscape works. So Super Bowl props opened last week, not in this current week. You would not want in the PPH space to enter bets of, for a previous week into the second week where there's a very good chance that that, or not a very good chance, but some chance that that account doesn't exist. So the majority of my betting takes place for the Super Bowl in the first part, first week on legal sites. So, you know, Arizona, Colorado, you go to the kiosks, and the, uh, you know, the desks, the counter. And that's where you kind of get down as much as you can at this point. I would say that's maybe hard to say because I'll explain a little bit how you bet the second half of the week and then I'll come back to the percentages. The second half of the week and more actionable kind of to the listeners is this market, uh, while it is getting sharper year over year, the casual public does influence the lines. And if you were to talk to your friend, I highly doubt that your friend wants to root for the most boring, lowest scoring Super Bowl in the history of football. 
So assuming that that's about how 99% of the people watching, it's very easy to understand that the market is going to drift up. Now, here comes the sucky part of this. That means that in reality, if you're trying to optimize your results, you're going to miss the first half of the Super Bowl because you should be behind the computer, mashing away at the keyboard, uh, betting unders, because this line has drifted throughout the week. Now, look, if you're really doing this correctly, you should have been tracking the opening. You should be seeing what the number is now and actually seeing that it's growing. I'm talking about for not modeling. And the Super Bowl is a little bit complicated to model. It's not an everyday game. But in reality, if you just want general strategy, the optimal way to do this is to wait until the last second and bet the other side, which is a thing we'll be doing. And again, it's not every play. Don't just open up the board and start clicking under on 99% of the plays. That That's not a winning formula. But if you're not modeling and you see, I mean, I can tell you now, last year there was a site where, or two years ago, I can't remember, Kelsey's line was six and a half. And two minutes before the Super Bowl, a site moved the line to nine and a half. You don't need to be a professional, smart, modeling, algorithmic sports better to know what to do and how to make money. So I think if you understand sort of the processes of how the Super Bowl betting works, that can kind of help you more in turning a profit. It's not going to be fun because you're probably going to be betting unders at the beginning. So in general, if you wanted to bet overs, first half of the week would be on legal sites, and that's mostly overs. And they have a lot of exotics. There's a lot, the more, the weirder the market, the better, in all honesty, if you're going to deep dive. And then the back half of the week, you're probably betting quite a few unders. Uh, how much of this is pure origination versus just shopping lines at different sites and more of a top-down approach? Yeah, so I would say not only is it some origination, some top-down, I'm willing to listen to other people's. I'm not particularly, you know, I don't believe in this invest all your eggs. This is the only time you can bet props. So bet every single market. This is not some 20% ROI fantasy anymore. It's a good week to bet, but it's not deplete your entire bankroll good week to bet. So I would say all three methods I sort of applied, maybe somewhat equally, a lot of top down, a lot of origination, sorry, equal amounts of top down origination, and even getting down some of the more exotic markets for other people. Yeah, I used to be opposed to all this, you know, it would just I realized how how much I was pigeonholing myself, just kind of not being open minded to, you know, there are a variety of ways. And, you know, it's not just all about bottom up. <laughs> yep, agreed. Uh, good tip there in terms of of betting late unders and, and early overs as well. Uh, any other actionable maybe piece of advice for Super Bowl week? Remember, this is going to be Thursday afternoon. People see this for the first time. So Friday, Saturday, Sunday to bet the Super Bowl. Anything you could think of off the top of your head that may be worth knowing? Yeah, so I'm kind of big into punts this game. I know that sounds weird, right? Who the heck's out here focused on punts? But I see a lot of good total punts overs. Gross, that's something that you can't bet the rest of the year. Gross punt yards, uh, longest punts. So I'm taking a pretty strong position on that. On that, And a little bit more of a fun bet, but I still think plus EV. Uh, you can work out historically and these teams that the opening drive, I, I hope it hasn't moved too much by now, but it was 17, over 17 and a half. I feel like that's a bet where I know there are some viewers that are not just in this for profit. It's also a little bit of fun, but I, I find that to be a... Uh, a profitable bet that you know it's real quick you're gonna know if you won or lost and the other piece of advice i have is open up your DraftKings or caesars or wherever they got plus 100 on heads or tails bet both the sides and pray that they make you vip <laughs> <laughs> 
not too many of those spots anymore, but you're right. You can get some plus 100s right around the Super Bowl. Uh, you heard Porter. He hates fun. He wants punts in the Super Bowl this year. Uh, notorious hater of fun. Uh, first time we had you on, uh, I don't know if we had the final questions yet, but we certainly didn't have the plus EV and minus EV moves of the week because those have been more recent. So it doesn't have to be related to sports betting at all. Uh, could be anything. Could be sports betting. Totally up to you. But one thing that one thing you think is plus EV in life, and one thing that you think is minus EV. All right. Well, you know, from the no fun guy, we got to start with the minus EV thing. So I can't pronounce this word. I should have probably hit Google and heard how how it's you know comes out. But there's a term called sorry, this is I'm saying this wrong. Apophenia. This is literally a disease that is in sports betting, but also in general life. Uh, humans evolved where they heard, you know, maybe some noise in the brushes when they were hunter gatherers, and they heard this noise enough times to realize, oh, that's a lion. That's a lot of noise. Let's run. Okay, so now humans are hardwired to create patterns in their minds that do not exist, and this is something incredibly dangerous in sports betting and also unhealthy in the game of life. And there isn't some magical cure to this thing, apophenia. It's just if you recognize that it exists. And I actually had a professor in college once who came out with a little card. And the card was, it had like 10,000 numbers. And it was 10101101010. One, zero, one, zero, one, zero, one, zero, one, zero. And another card said 10000011111. One, zero, 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 one, 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 one. And he asked the uh, students, it's a pretty good university, he asked the student, which one of these cards do you think is random? And 99% of the people said, you know, one zero, one zero, one one zero. And the professor was said, how is that possible? Do you think the human mind is actually going to come out with a card that says one and then 14 zeros in a row? So I find myself very lucky that I was in that class one time because while this isn't something you can fix, humans are hardwired. If you recognize that sports betting involves not just, you can't just make up patterns or see patterns. You're going to see patterns that don't exist. And if you can kind of eliminate or at least understand that you're doing this, you're going to have a lot more success in sports betting and in the game of life. Really appreciate that piece of advice. Uh, Apophenia, you nailed it. 10 out of 10 on pronunciation there, Porter. Didn't even have to look it up like I did. Uh, Plus EV move for you. Plus EV. So on the other side of the tail, I think a lot of people in life, uh, they get really fixated on what they're doing. And I'd say a lot of people here are watching, you know, sports betting show. And they're really into sports betting and their entire life revolves around sports betting. So that means after you're done with the betting, after you know, you're know you done watching, it continues on to be a part of your life. And there's no possible way that if you don't have friends that do other things, that you have other outlets, that you can actually optimize your work for the sports betting. So I find it really important to figure out how to surround yourself and do other things that are not, you can't just be all in on something just because of the fact that you probably, it will probably harm you. Fair enough. Um, I'm gonna put you on the spot here before we actually get into our final question because there's a talking point that comes up pretty regularly in our comments section, uh, in my DMs, in our community forum, and that is related to right angle sports. So episode number 100, we had Ed Golden, founder of Right Angle Sports on the program, and historically RAS, as they're called out out there by short form RAS, has had um, very banner results, even though they sell picks for a very long time. This year, 
the college basketball results at time of this recording, 169 wins, 173 losses, nine pushes, 49.4%, but obviously down significant amount of units because you're not betting plus 100 on all these. You're betting minus 110 on all of these. I know you're very active in the right angle sports uh, discord and and were for a, a longer period of time. What do you make of the downturn in results? Because this is like very back and forth in the community of like, well, they're going to figure it out. Um, they've lost their edge. They shouldn't be selling. What, what do you make of the whole situation that's surrounding right angle sports right now? Right. So let's start with the record real quick. I mean, one, it's kind of, you know, grouping results based off. I'm not a big fan of grouping results. I know a lot of people will take a segment one season, two season, you know, this conference, that conference. One, I'd say that the record um, is probably worse because the cash that's buying the the product is chasing slightly worse lines, most likely. Um, but I will say this. I highly doubt, and um, again, this is a little bit of speculation. I, I do know some of the guys at Right Angle Sports. There's no question in my mind that they're not worse than they were before. These guys work hard. If anything, most likely they're better. But... That has nothing to do with the fact that this the market has changed and maybe some i'm not saying right angle sports but in general people are sort of in denial of how much you can get down overnight so if you're a big operation and you need to sell to a lot of people you know to pay a lot of guys you need to be able to get down more and unfortunately this industry has become kind of bottom of the barrel chasing where i think 15 years ago i heard you could pay the new guy 500 bucks to not bet early and he would stop where today there's just it's culturally become more acceptable for guys coming out of MIT, CIT, all these engineering guys, they can figure out how to win. This is easier than the bond market, stock market, financial markets. So while Raz is most likely actually getting better at their job, the market, in my opinion, has just evolved where you can get enough down early and move the market so that while in historically maybe they had an 8% edge, it's easy to sell to people when you have less variance. And you might still be a winner today and your ROI is 3 or 4%. And the new demographic, we talked about these individuals coming into the sports betting space, don't understand variance and what a 3 or 4% edge means. So you can have congruently they're getting better and they're having worse results. It has nothing to do with how hard they're working. They're trying to you know, screw the individual better. It's just the market evolves over time. And if you've grown to a really large size where you need to sell a lot, you know, you need to get down a lot, you've got to wait longer. So they might be better than ever, but the market is becoming sharper overnight. And, and yes, you can get down large figures overnight. I mean, large, again, it's subjective. I, I can tell you, you can get five figures. You can figure it out. If you're a winner and you crush on this, you can get it. You can get that down. So they're getting better. The market's getting better. The clientele maybe today can't handle the variance, but in no place or shape or form do I think that they're losing betters. That's actually a ridiculous concept. Uh, in terms of the clientele, and, and this, we'll move on to the final question here shortly. Um, do you think that's because 
right angle sports is marketing themselves more now than they have before. Like I I've been involved in the space for a long time. I've always known of right angle sports, but they weren't out there or as prominent, I think as they are now and maybe reaching like more of the casual community, people who think that they, you know, have found a gold mine. Do you think that there's more of that backlash because the clientele um, is potentially just very different now than it was a couple years ago? Or do you think that this would be the same thing if it was just, you know, a bunch of pro betters that were buying the subscription? Well, that, that'd be incredibly pathetic. If it was a bunch of pro betters buying the subscription, <laughs> like, I'm sorry, you're not a pro better if you can't understand what like a 3% or 4% ROI is. I mean, everybody, I, I look, there are markets, small, not often, where you can have a 15% ROI and lose 10 bets in a row. Like, come on. So it's, it's the clientele. And shouldn't they be trying to reach out for more people? Doesn't that make sense? This is just sort of the downside of, of, of growing pains and unfortunate variants hitting at the same time with market becoming slightly more difficult. All right. Good uh, perspective on that. Uh, final question here, Porter. If you could go back five years and talk to a previous version of yourself, what advice would you give to your former self? So I think I was on the show almost three years ago. So this is sort wow. of fitting, you know, so nah, two and a half, but you know, we're at the halfway point. Yeah. So last time I gave an answer on the show, I got told afterward it's a uh, survivorship bias uh, was my answer, how, how I answered. So here's my answer for the question you're asking today. It's the same answer I gave two and a half years ago. At the end of the day, if I'm answering the question for myself, I learned none of the lessons of the last question. I'm still underbetting my bankroll. I'm still not betting enough being able to get down more. So I hope that, uh, you know, when Circles Off flourishes and have, has me on again in three years, that I can give a different answer next time. All right. Well, we will have you on again at some point, Porter, one way or another. Uh, hopefully we are much larger at that point. Everyone, make sure you sub here to Circles Off. Uh, over 5,000 followers now. Really appreciate all the support from everyone out there as we continue to grow. You can follow him on Twitter at MLBK's psychic professional sports better porter really appreciate you joining us here for episode number 140 of circles off and we are back next week live version the day after the super bowl stay tuned set bell notifications me and johnny breaking down the super bowl we'll see everyone next week peace out thank you for having me on <laughs>